Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Oh my God, I'm so excited for tonight. So why don't we introduce ourselves and the movie that you're proud to bring to the table today. We'll start with you. Hi, my name's Joey Fondle. My film that I'm bringing to the table today is The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, what version, pray tell? The only version, Jimmy. The version from the 90s, uh, 19... Starring Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando and the world's littlest man. Oh, my God. Well, that's that's great. Very promising. Hi, it's me, Norm Burns, here tonight, and I'm really excited to talk about one of my favorite time travel films, one of the worst movies ever made. It's Kate and Leopold. <laughs> okay. And I'm Jimmy, and I chose Howard the Duck. I don't have a clever quip. I'll just say it like this, Howard the Duck. And on the phone tonight, we're trying something new. This might get weird is an old voice you might remember. What's your name? My name is Ben, and the movie I brought to the table is a movie we've talked about a lot, but I don't believe we've actually talked about it on an episode the one and only champion of VHS artwork, Bleeders. Bleeders. Do you know Bleeders? No. I'm really excited. You don't know Bleeders? Oh, I don't know man. Bleeders. Not to be confused with Breeders. Bleeders. Yeah, oh. Breeders is only slightly okay, more legit. Bleeders. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they were released by the same studio, too, the, uh, the 97 version. I looked it up. Without going into too much detail, Apex Entertainment, which is no longer with us, they released a lot of my favorite terrible films from the 90s, so it's good to know. So if you haven't guessed, we're doing bad movies. And uh, not just bad movies per se, but we're doing good bad. We're doing bad bad movies. <laughs> and maybe we'll try to figure out what makes a bad movie good and what makes a bad bad movie bad. Are you still with me? We're here. That yeah. made sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here. Right we followed. Here. Yeah. I followed. All right, so check out this little intro, and then we're going to talk about the bad bad this is Movie Show Theater. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Keep the change, you filthy animal. I'm sorry, you just tough talk a dead body? Get busy living, or get busy dying. Keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. That's goddamn right. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. So, I think the five of us, including Ben, are very passionate about movies in general, but also the nostalgia that comes with bad movies. So I guess we'll have each one of us just briefly explain why they chose their movie and whether it's a good bad or a bad bad movie. <laughs> and then after that, we'll uh, define that a little more clearly. So Joey, why Yo. did you why did you choose your movie? <laughs> um, well, my movie <clears throat> is a classically bad movie. Uh, there's a scene in it where Marlon Brando wears a bucket on his head um, because when they were filming, he put a uh, random bucket on his head. And everyone was too afraid to tell Marlon Brando to take the bucket off of his head. So they just went ahead and filmed the scene. <laughs> and it's actually in the movie like that. Uh, and I think that pretty much speaks for itself. Because I, I believe the whole production was plagued with problems that were a lot like that. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's pretty much it. 
Um, I know that they also he was also hanging out with the world's smallest man at the time and demanded that he be in the movie, is my understanding. <laughs> they gave him like this um, sort of like ghost-like appearance. Again, I don't know if that's makeup or it's just the way Marlon Brando looked at the time. Because <laughs> it was like at the height of the height of crazy Marlon Brando. Again, he was like wearing a bucket on his head and hanging out with the world's smallest man <laughs> and demanded that both be in the, in the final film. And he got his way. Yeah. And um, and also there was, uh, I watched this documentary about the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau. It was really interesting. And it was um, like there was witches and warlocks involved with the, the making of the film because the original director, Richard Stanley, uh, was really into witchcraft. And he had a uh, a warlock do like the warlock version of a blessing on the film to correct all of the the problems that he was encountering and uh the warlock <laughs> the warlock fell ill like a quarter of the way into production and all of a sudden all of the problems came back and the production was hit by a giant hurricane because they were filming <laughs> like uh <laughs> they were filming in New Zealand and as soon as that warlock was out the the whole film just kind of fell apart and Richard Stanley very quickly was replaced by um, the movie's credited director, John Frankenheimer. <laughs> and so this guy, Richard Stanley, who's really only known for like a couple other really bad movies. Um, one of them, I, I think it was called Hardware. And then the other one was called Devil's Dust. And it was one of those situations in the 90s where, you know, all the movie studios were like, oh, he's the next big thing. So we're going to give him uh, $8 million to make this movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And he became friends with um, uh, Marlon Brando because they were both like batshit crazy. And so, like, because Marlon Brando signed on, then they all of a sudden the studio was like, "Oh, this isn't an eight million dollar picture. This is a thirty million dollar picture." <laughs> and because Marlon Brando signed on, all of a sudden Val Kilmer wanted to sign on. Everybody wanted to work with Marlon Brando. So it, the budget of the movie just kind of ballooned from there. And this really what was a first time studio director kind of was in over his head at that point. And he was also hiring warlocks to bless the film. <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of, and like was climbing up trees on bad days and wouldn't come down from the trees in New Zealand or wherever they shot it. It was just like a, a, a colossal mess. And Val Kilmer was in the middle of a divorce. Um, and apparently like most of the rumors that you hear about Val Kilmer being really hard to work with, a lot of that stems from, the island of Dr. Moreau and Marlon Brando was already crazy going into it. And on top of that, his daughter um, very tragically had committed suicide just before filming started on the movie. And so it was just all of these factors sort of came together. And I think one of the reasons why I think it's a bad, bad movie is because it's just like the hurricane that struck the production. It's just sort of this perfect storm of all of these things going wrong. And uh, it's just a it's a nightmare mess of a movie. It's amazing that anything even came out of it. It's amazing that there's a finished product to begin with from this thing that at one time was going to be Marlon Brando and Bruce Willis and James Woods. That was the original. <laughs> that was the original cast. James Woods was going to play all of the uh, yeah. creatures. James Woods was going to play the. Ron um, Perlman was there. Who was, was? Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman, yeah, Ron Perlman was there. Faruza Balk who was a big 90s star. She was in The Craft. Remember that? Um, she was in it. Like, there's a lot of, uh, like, up-and-coming talent, a lot of stars initially attached to it that kind of switched out over time. And uh, I just I just remember it being one of those movies from my childhood where it was coming on the tales of um, Jurassic Park and Congo and all of these movies about science 
going wrong. And I was so excited for the, Do- the Island of Dr. Moreau because I thought it was going to be like that. It was going to be like a fun adventure film. And I just remember watching it for the first time as a child and just being so scared and confused. And, <laughs> and I imagine uh, my reaction. Sounds it, like so was the crew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the crew, like all of that stuff, those uh, those monsters from the movie, if you remember. They, I mean, that's one of the things, the way the budget the budget just ballooned was they got Stan Winston Studios to do all of the monster makeup and the the prosthetic suits and all of that stuff. And, and those monsters, if you remember, it's it's just crazy. They have um, like a pig woman with uh, like eight eight nipples and, and two of them are her real nipples. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody knows which two. But no one knows which two. And uh, I guess like all of the, the monster cast was like, they were like doing it behind the scenes. What? And like the in yeah, costume? They were doing it in costume and doing drugs and it was just a, just a mess. <laughs> Jesus. And, and apparently too, the original director who was dropped, you know, they were shooting, I believe in Australia, had a mental breakdown them came back as an extra heavily disguised. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Came back. The making of the film is so much more interesting than the film itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a telling sign. You saw the documentary? You know what? I haven't, but I was just reading up on all of these movies before the show, and I just, you know, made a quick trip to Wikipedia. It's like, wow, the production section is much longer than even the plot or anything else. That's not necessarily a good sign. It's incredible. I don't recommend Island of Dr. Moreau, but I do recommend the documentary about the making of Island Dr. Moreau. It's so fascinating. It's not a great movie. There's like those early aughts, um, like transitions and, and titles where it's like they clearly made it in like Pinnacle Studio or one of those like early editing <laughs> yeah, software yeah, yeah. things. Like, like it's not like the best, but the, just like the content is so interesting. It's so fascinating to see like how a movie can go so terribly wrong. And I'm kind of like fascinated by Marlon Brando. Like that is such an interesting story of how a man just completely fell apart. And like he was this icon beloved by everyone. It's right there. Like the proof is in the pudding with Island of Dr. Moreau. All of these actors, even at the height of his craziness, were like Marlon Brando's in, I'm in. Like just (laughs) signing up. And they were talking, Richard Stanley, who was the original director, like he became friends with Marlon Brando, which is how he got him to be in the movie and how the studio like kind of kept him on for a little bit. And he was talking about how for the initial production meeting, Richard Stanley went to Marlon Brando's Hollywood estate to meet with him to talk about the movie. And the studio sent this woman who worked for the studio, uh, Ruth, I think her name was. And Marlon Brando didn't want Ruth to be at this this meeting. He just wanted to talk to the director. So he um, <laughs> he was playing games with the temperature in his house where he would turn the heat on and then turn the air conditioning on and then turn the heat on and turn the air conditioning up. And the woman kept saying, like, oh, if, you, if, you, if it gets any colder in here, I'm going to fall asleep. And eventually, of course, she fell asleep. Like oh Marlon Brando, God. like, put this woman to sleep. <laughs> and as soon as she fell asleep, he, Marlon Brando and the director got around to talking about the movie. And so that was just, like, one of his many ways of getting around the studio like he's just like an interesting person and everything is like a contradiction with him at that time in his life where it's like did he care about the movie did he not care about the movie like what was what was going on in that dude's head yeah it sounds like he had his own little slow descent into madness yeah but i think you reach a certain plateau in acting where you no longer are able to like throw yourself 
into projects like you once were and you don't do projects for the money anymore. You do them as like favors to people or you do them because it sounded interesting or I don't know what. But the reason that I was motivated to do this episode is because I wanted to ride on the curtails of the disaster artist because it comes out December 1st, the story of The Room, this movie being made, if you've never seen it. We've done a whole podcast on it. I could do another whole podcast on it. But I was going to say, too, Jimmy, the only disappointing part about being in your wedding was that we didn't all have full tuxedos, and that while we were <laughs> not in full tuxedos, we didn't throw around a football in an alley. Oh, <laughs> God. on that, dude. When you guys were talking about the room, did you discuss like the origins of Tommy Wiseau and like where mm-hmm. he came from? And that like nobody knows where he's from or how old he is. I was reading a thing on Reddit where like Reddit solved it; they figured it out because like Reddit, when they team together, they can like figure oh, out yeah. mysteries and stuff. And uh, this guy figured out that he's Polish, yeah, like they, from Poland. Yeah, they tracked immigrated to like Louisiana, right? Right, right. Um, his name Wiseau is a combination of like his nickname. The bird and, or something. Yeah, the bird and mm-hmm. um, his Polish name, which is something I can't pronounce or remember. <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah, crazy. But that yeah. was something I read today about the room. So if you're not a B-movie nut, if we've kind of lost you with this talk, I tried to come up with three qualifiers for what a bad, bad movie is and what a good, bad movie is. And Ben, put me in my place if this isn't right, but... A good bad movie is a ma- movie that's so bad it's good. Uh, the first qualifier, the good must be derived from the bad. So it's a movie that is so bad it's good. The worse it gets, the better it gets. Where like it reaches a certain point and it becomes a parody of itself and then it's like entertaining on a whole new factor. The second one, the movie must have a history of being a critical failure. So I think that's good because one of the reasons that I love movies so much is because you can't really truly tell somebody that was a bad movie. It can be a bad movie for you or a movie that didn't work for you, but there's nobody that can convince me that Face Off is a bad movie. I I think Face Off is an example of a good bad movie. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, The last qualifier is that the enjoyment of the bad movie cannot be the intention of the filmmakers. So that means no McGruber, because that was a parody of bad movies. No Kazam, no Army of Darkness. <laughs> and kind of rules out a lot of comedy in general, because it can't be proven that it wasn't the director's intention. intention. Yeah. Yeah. You think Kazam was intentionally bad? I think there's a lot of fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. But I also know that Kazam wasn't made for me, so it's hard to look at it from an adult perspective. I mean... Kazam is a little ridiculous, but again, it's... Uh, you look at Shaquille O'Neal in that movie and tell me that's not an earnest performance, Jimmy. <laughs> All right, Kazam is terrible. Boo. <laughs> Take it back. Yeah, because when, when you were saying all that, which I think that's a really good uh, set of qualifiers, I was thinking of that rash of genuinely terrible movies that... Um, kind of offshoots of scary movie um, that were pretty much there to capitalize on, you know, the popular movies of the time. I think there was disaster movie. Not another teen movie. Like, maybe my mind is blocked out all of those titles, but it's just, you look back on them and they weren't good to begin with. And they really don't hold up now because all they really do is ape on movies in a way that's not clever as opposed to, you know, um, films like naked gun or any of the Mel Brooks movies that mm-hmm. were genuinely funny. Yeah. 
So Ben, why why do you say bleeders? What makes bleeders so special? <laughs> oh wow! Well, uh, as I as I mentioned before, it seems like they spent more budget money on the VHS box than the movie. Um, if people out there listening aren't aware of the the bleeders VHS box, you know that's to me one of the all time greatest family video finds because it has these ugly looking creatures, you know fangs barely any hair they're kind of egg-headed mutants but on the box itself you obviously have the title bleeders and it looks like these monsters are kind of encased in blood so when you touch the box the blood moves around a little bit i just described the best thing about the movie uh, <laughs> as far as the, the film itself this would probably be the definition of bad bad first of all not all H.P. Lovecraft adaptations are bad, but a lot of them are, probably because most of them are short stories and there's not a whole lot of dialogue. So if you're making it into a film, you kind of have to run with it in the way that um, Reanimator did or, you know, From oh, yeah. Beyond, those Stuart Gordon films with Bleeders. So it pretty much started off right off the bat with, uh, you know, you're in France and there's this aristocratic family uh, the Van Dams, but not like the fun <laughs> Van Dam. You know, any roundhouse kicks. Uh, no blood sport going on. <laughs> but they're they're incest. Uh, they're an incest family in the seventeenth yes. or eighteenth century. And I can't remember which king it is, but he basically outlaws incest. Long story short, they come to the United States and they do their thing with each other, quite literally, and they supposedly disappear. Uh, you flash forward to the present, and there's uh, there's John Strauss. He's played by the Roy Dupuy from La Femme Nikita. He and his wife show up to this island because he has a rare blood disease. Uh, he's part of this, this Van Damme family, and he's trying to figure out the truth. Well, it's just a really long, boring movie, or it seems long because it's just he and his wife, like, being whiny and complaining the whole time. And I guess one of the, the shining parts is um, Rutger Hauer is kind of like a drunken doctor. But other than that, it's just like a paper-thin plot, a bunch of generic goblin-like creatures that are eating corpses, which would probably be cool in a different context, but it's like that combination of the script not necessarily being bad, but threadbare. I mean, the direction is like a made-for-TV movie, like the worst kind you can think of. And then the the creature design, like when it actually comes to them showing up, is just god-awful. Basically the worst thing you can think of in every conceivable way. So that's why I picked Bleeders. <laughs> yeah, it was really disturbing, but it wasn't disturbing on an entertaining level. It was just, <laughs> like, mean-spirited and, I don't know, I feel like it's hard to throw around the word incest and someone, like, reads that on the back of the box and they're like, yeah, okay, well, I'll still give it a shot. Yeah, and that's one of those things, too, where you think of, of horror films pushing the envelope and, you know, addressing taboo subjects. This film could have done that in a way that made sense and made you think, but it didn't necessarily do that. You just feel like the, the incest part of the, the film was there for shock value, and then it wasn't really shocking because the execution was so poor. Like, even the acting from almost everyone except Rutger Hauer is just like completely wooden. It's just like, yeah, we got we got paid and we showed up, so here we are <laughs> to be in this terrible film. Yeah, so I feel like for me to define a, a bad, bad movie is actually, it's hard to 
find a bad, bad movie because I think it's a movie that has no value at all. And Battlefield Earth is such a, a good example for me because they had so many resources. Like, they had a huge budget. They had talent. They had, you know, a legitimate cinematographer. They had, like, A-list talents, and it's worse than bad. I think Waterworld would be a, a good bad, although... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find a movie that, like, truly does nothing for me, you know? One thing, too, I mentioned um, Apex Entertainment releasing this film and saying they released some of my most memorable bad movies of the 90s. I have a list open here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apex Entertainment, which I believe is is shuttered, gone, may they rest in peace, released The Hip Hop Witch, um, which I didn't see that one, but I need to at some point. But the ones that stick out the most to me are um, Jack Frost. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I remember that um, one. Also, Uncle Sam. If you remember that one from the VHS days, that was the one where it was just a normal-looking Uncle Sam, and then you flipped the box, and he turned into, like, almost an evil zombie Uncle Sam. Oh, wow. <laughs> Didn't the and Jack Frost... This one is, is definitely Hall of Fame-worthy. Um, not the Michael Keaton one. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not the heartwarming... Uh, Michael Keaton one, but no, that's a good bet. Clint Howard and Ice Cream Man. Oh, oh yeah. I remember that one. That's their legacy. Yeah, that movie has some imagery that sticks with me for sure, <laughs> and that's sure. why it's a good bad movie. Yeah, I enjoyed most of those other ones that I mentioned. Like I said, I haven't seen the Hip Hop Witch, but yeah, for some reason they missed the mark with Bleeders because I think they they took it a little too seriously. I would love to see the Hip Hop Witch. Yeah, I want to see the Hip Hop like, Witch. It sounds like Apex. <laughs> sounds like Apex was trauma video without the camp. Yeah, they weren't on that trauma or full moon level. You know, they that's probably why they closed. They just did. They just didn't get the formula right. Ben, you mentioned like the VHS box art for this movie being like the draw to it. And I think that's it. You mentioned like family video too. And like walking around the video store. When I think of bad, bad movies, a lot of them come from that era from when I was a kid and you could walk around the video store and kind of like all movies were equal to a certain extent. There was no like now where you have this hierarchy of like the movies that are the most viewed or the most popular are going to be at the top of your list of streaming films. Like back in the day, you would walk into like the video store and everything was kind of just on its equal level. Like it was alphabetized. There was no way, you know, because when you're a kid, you don't have like discriminating taste or you don't know like, oh, this this was out in theaters and this wasn't. It's just kind of like everything is equal. So like the VHS box art was a way of like enhancing that to a certain extent where it was like, we're going to put all of our money into this VHS. And so many of those boxes are just like, to this day, like, I'll think of them sometimes. Like, like you mentioned, like, Clint Howard and Ice Cream Man. Like, I can immediately, yeah, like, Yeah, Ice Cream Cone with the eyeball yeah, in it. I never saw that movie, but, like, I, I know that cover in my <laughs> yeah. head. Because, like, walking around, I'm just like, ooh, Ice Cream Man. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. could it be about? Like, it... And, like, half of these movies... I remember, like, Carnivore was a big one. Like, because I was really into Jurassic Park and... And then, of course, there was Carnivore, and it had, like, a giant T-Rex on the cover, and it looked sick, oh, yeah. and it looked awesome. it looked awesome. And I was just like, in my mind at the time, it's like, there's no difference between Jurassic Park and Carnivore. It's just like, <laughs> they're both great films about dinosaurs. It's a harder yeah. Jurassic Park. So I think, I think that's interesting, and that brings up a good point about bad, bad movies, is nowadays, it's like, the streaming services and everything, like, they just, everyone just kind of tells you that this is a bad, bad movie. All of the mystery is gone, and... 
I feel like the art of the bad, bad movie is kind of fading away because you, you know, you like, we have all this information. We always know what a movie is about or we have some sort of backstory going into watching a movie nowadays. Whereas when I was younger, I know you would go in just completely blind and everything was based off of this, this box art. That that was their one chance. That was their yeah, thesis sentence. That nine times out of ten was total bullshit. Like it was just like thing, <laughs> things that weren't even in the movie. Like going like going back to the Island of Doctor Moreau documentary. He, the Richard Stanley guy was talking about the original like film adaptation of the Island of Doctor Moreau, and he was talking about when he was a kid and he saw the poster for that movie, and um, I think it was like the seventies adaptation or something like that. And there's like a, an image of a woman transforming into a panther. And he said, like, captivate his, his imagination. And he watched it and he was like, a woman never turns into a panther in this movie. But that's like the thing about like the posters and, and the, and the art is like they could back, like back then they could just put whatever they wanted on there. And, mm-hmm. and like it didn't matter. Just like rent this, buy this. Yeah. I think the Dr. Moreau, one of the reasons that went wrong was because it's, it's not a terrible story idea. But when you read a book and imagine what characters and monsters look like versus actually putting them in front of you and being told this is what they look like, I feel like it's one of those like just just not made for the screen. It just was never meant to be for the screen. It's much better. You know, I can picture a better monster in my head, but with all the money in the world, I could never make one uh, as satisfying to like quench everybody's their their idea what they think it should be. Bleeders, I don't. I, I think that was just doomed from the start. But Norm, what did what what what's your problem with time travel and Caden Leopold? So, it's this is a movie that I'm just constantly blown away by. It, like if if I came to you and I was like, "Hey, the director of Copland and Girl Interrupted," oh yeah, a time travel movie with Hugh Jackman and Leah Schreiber, you'd be like, oh, maybe, you know, yeah, sure. And the guy from Ghost, don't and forget. And then Meyer and Meg Ryan, oh, yeah. and it's a rom-com. Every single, like, I mean, one thing about time travel movies is you got to kind of be, like, historically accurate, you know, if, if you want to be taken seriously. Not one historical fact <laughs> it works. Almost every reference that Hugh Jackman's character makes throughout the movie is from, like, years after the dude actually existed or after he travels through time and he's, like, in modern-day New York City. And it's never, like, the the cars or the skyscrapers that blow his mind. It's the fact that, like, a cop asks him to pick up the dog shit on the sidewalk. (laughs) I... (laughs) It's... (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't none of it works like in the past when when, the, when like they're in the past in the in the big gala there's an american flag that has like all 50 stars from like 1866 or 1876 whenever he fucking leaves and then and then the the, the cherry on the top is the whole movie is Leah shriver's ex-girlfriend turns out to be his great great grandmother and and he was he's he was destined to introduce her to his great great grandfather, so that he could exist. Wow, <laughs> it's horrible. You never hear people talking but, about that movie too. I no. feel like. Well, but see, and this is the, like I mean, so like he did, he did Logan, he did Walk the Line, he did Identity, Copland, like I said, Girl Interrupted, and then he did these movies right in the middle. He did Kate and Leopold, and then I think it was like Identity, maybe, and then he did that movie Night and Day with uh, Tom Cruise and. Oh. Um, that was Cameron a bad, Diaz. bad movie. That's a bad, bad movie. Yeah. So it, I think it was like, they're like, you want to do Walk the Line? You got to make 
Kate and Leopold. They're like, oh, you want Wolverine? You got to make Night and Day first. I think it's like one of those Hollywood hurdles. You got you got to jump if you want to get a good production going. So he was forced to make Kate, Kate and Leopold. That's, sounds like he was story. probably going through some shit and needed some money. <laughs> like he, the first script that came his way that had a big like payday on it. He's oh, like, yeah. fine, Kate and Leopold sounds great. No, it's people selling it to him like it's, it's not about a time travel. You know, it's the modern romance. It's it's the loss of sh- it's the loss of chivalry. You know, this yeah. guy comes from the past, this Duke, that, like, in real life, I guess, like, the Duke of Albany, I was reading, like, all these historians were pissed off by Caden Leopold because the the real Duke of Albany was, like, this sickly child. Like, he never would have jumped off a bridge, never would have rode a horse to chase down a robber because he would have, like, died. There was, like, a quote from the Duke of Albany's actual mother that, like, paraphrasing, obviously, was, like, I can't believe... He lived as long as he did. <laughs> and and so it's like the writers of the script, which James Mangold is one of them, they're just like, all right, we're just going to take this Duke that we know was here around the time. They won't check anything he references. Like the play he sings wasn't even written until like 30 years after this guy <laughs> existed. Like he references the telephone, which didn't come out until a year after he travels back in time, <laughs> like or forward in time. They, they, they checked zero facts, and they were just like, get Breckenmeyer in here, Meg Ryan, you know, like we're going to have the greatest rom-com, like move over Tom Hanks, is time-traveling Hugh Jackman. Epic failure. God, as much as I hate the sound of that movie, I love how frustrated it makes you. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, the first time I saw it, it was it was a, I was in California. I watched two movies that night for the first time ever. First, I watched Kate and Leopold, and was just like, "What?" <laughs> and then I saw Fight Club for the first time, and so wow. it was like. You know, you go from yeah. one side of the spectrum to the complete opposite. Did you watch Fight Club first and no, then Fight Club second? Oh, Kate okay. Leopold first, then Fight Club. Weird. That'll, that would always be the movie that followed Kate and Leopold for <laughs> <Right>. me. <laughs> I wonder if maybe maybe, that, maybe the writers were just thought, like, we have such a, an unbelievable love story on our hands that nobody's going to question the historical side. Like, no one's asking for a historical biopic, but... It's just it's it's insulting it's when you watch a movie, movie like that and like there, there has to be checks like there wasn't one guy that was just like yo the bridge that you're witnessing the speech at like wasn't even done yet yeah <laughs> or how about this place. just make up a historical character yeah they, they the, you can make they, up your own canon they tried to pull real guys it's just the sheer amount of money there's no checks and balances it's not it's not like something where like deep blue sea the story comes along and they're like smart sharks the, the sharks get smarter and you're trapped on this base and they're going to eat you everyone's like green light we don't need to check if sharks can get smart like we don't need to go into any fucking science but then they're like oh right, we're going to have a you know a director who just came off an academy award winning film we're going to give him an all-star cast we're going to give him a huge budget, shoot it in a New York City, shoot it in Central Park, but no one's going to check a goddamn fact. Blows my mind. Do you find that you think about Kate and Leopold when you get on elevators? Every time. I look <laughs> for the word Otis, and it's in every... And the funniest thing is, like, in the movie, Hugh Jackman's like, oh, like, my assistant Otis helped me design this. That's not even true. Like, <laughs> like the, the, the Duke of Albany was an inventor, but he had nothing to do with the fucking elevator. The Sky Otis was separate. Uh-huh. But it, it, that is true. Like the the Otis is in every single mm-hmm. elevator. But then that's another thing. Is so like if it was predestined to be just time travel logic here. Right. If the whole thing was predestined from the very beginning, where the first time Leo Schreiber goes back and he's snapping photos at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. 
And it's not till the end of the film, of course, he finally gets the developed pictures back and he sees Meg Ryan in it. So it was yeah. always meant to be that happened, she'd go yeah. back. If that's the case, then the elevators would have never stopped working because it was going to get done eventually. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. It was an infinite loop. The loop had been at, in play <laughs> yeah. before Since the movie the be- even yeah. started. Yeah. The fabric was torn. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. There's just the, the continuity factor. Like with that, whenever there's time travel and somebody from the past comes to the future, the reveal is always like what kills me. Like the, the it's always underwhelming. If I lived in the 1700s and I was transported to 2005, it wouldn't be this like, oh my god, everything is so new and different. Like I would scream and have a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. like pass the, out. Yeah, like yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't operate in this world. I don't know what door locks are, or a car, or crossing the street, or a dog leash, or a cop. Well, how would I know what a cop looks like in a like cop? You know, I don't know. It's just, it just doesn't work for me. Especially going from like that era to the present, there's like no context of like, oh well. There's like the industrial revolution, like technology progresses at like this certain rate yeah. and like, but they're coming into like our era. Like it would not be a charming transition. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, Oh <laughs> yeah. They, instead of making him like a terrified time traveler, they turn him into like, Oh, he's the classiest guy in New York. Chivalry's right? not dead. Chuds. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but he's wiping his ass with his hand after he shits yeah. and he doesn't know what antiseptic yeah, is. So. <laughs> What'd you say? I said he hasn't showered in a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, Hugh Jackman being an actor coming from, like, Broadway background, you know? There's a line that he has in the film where he's he's giving the kid that just shows up in Leo Schreiber's apartment every day, apparently. Like, he just lets himself in. Kid that lives in the building. And he's telling him the story of, he's, like, acting out the Pirates of Penzance. Hugh Jackman should know the plot of Pirates of Penzance. Gets the whole plot wrong. He's talking about how, like, the Pirate King falls in love with the girl when it was actually, like, the Pirate's Apprentice. It's just, like, nothing ever adds up, uh-huh. even when it should have. Everything is wrong. Everything is about that movie is wrong, yeah. They basically compiled everything from cliff note versions of everything, like, yeah, I read about this from some sources <laughs> not reliable. Let's just throw it in the film. <laughs> yeah, I, I, went to, I went to history class one week. Well, let's go with it, you know? Like... <laughs> If the movie had been made in the 80s, you could just blame it on Coke. But, like, I, <laughs> what is their excuse? No, it's, they it was 2001. No, yeah, they had no excuse. Yeah. They had the internet at that point. I mean, like, they couldn't pull it up on their phone. They had Breck and fucking Meyer. They had Breck and Meyer, I'm sure, knew what was up. He should have known better. So, speaking of cocaine, I chose Howard the Duck. <laughs> and if there's ever been evidence of pervasive cocaine in a movie, it would be this mean-spirited movie who is marketed to nobody apparently because it's too childish for adults and it's way too dark for kids namely the scene when he howard gets pulled through his duck apartment complex if you don't remember the movie so well howard the duck lives on a planet that like mirrors earth and everybody does things on this planet that they do on earth um but there's several naked lady ducks um with nipples um, at one point, Leah Thompson kisses Howard the Duck. Oh, I thought you were about to say the lady nipple. Oh, no, he didn't, he didn't, no, that's in Bleeders. <laughs> but yeah, it has me really frustrated to have like this love story between Leah Thompson and this alien duck. And I know it's in jest. I can't take it too seriously, but it's one of those movies that's kind of like insulting. I don't know. Am I thinking too far into Howard the Duck? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, um, it was another movie that 
I really wanted to like when I was a kid, but I just like couldn't quite get behind it. Like it was just like there were too many parts that just went over my head. And uh, I don't th- I don't know if I watched it as an adult, but I think I just remember there's like a sex scene right between mm-hmm. Leah Thompson and Howard, mm-hmm. where like you see them. It's kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show where you see their silhouette behind a yeah. sheet. You see like the top of her feet and then like the bottom of the duck's feet. Yeah, it's it's a re- it's a really screwed up movie. And like you said, like I don't know who. Like, who was the audience for that? Yeah. Because I know that Howard the Duck was a comic book, right? Mm-hmm. And... The a Marvel? Comic- yeah. Because there's they're a... Teased. It had a yeah. Teased. What was that at the end was of? It, um, was it Thor? Or no, it was uh, Guardians. The Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, the first Guardians, they had a Howard the Duck reference. But he was very different in the comic book. This is just stuff that like, I've, I've read about and like seen in, on TV. But like, I guess like the comic book was very different. It was a little bit more raunchy, kind of like the difference between Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the comic book, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like the movie, where there's like more, yeah, they're more violent and like um, sassy and, and all that stuff. So I don't know. Like, I, I think it was one of those things where it was like the germ of the idea was probably good and probably very earnest, but the final product was just this cocaine fueled mess of a movie. Yeah, clearly there was there was a lot of like camp that they incorporated, but it doesn't mean that you're above judgment. I guess is what I'm saying. Are you still with us, Ben? Yeah, I was gonna say too. It seemed like um, this was another one where the production got kind of weird because first this was proposed as uh, an animated film, so then Lucas is like, "No, it needs to be live action. We need to showcase these special effects." And just reading through how the script was developed, maybe there was a whole lot of cocaine because um, it seemed like maybe in the first treatment, they didn't even figure out how necessarily Howard got to Earth. It's just that he appeared and they later added the reason why he got to Earth. So they just didn't seem to think this through. It's like somebody liked the Howard the Duck franchise. They wanted to make it into a film. They just didn't really put the pieces together. I mean, they even changed his his character completely, as we alluded to in this conversation. Like, his original character was raunchier. And it was kind of like a, a fourth-wall-breaking satire. And then um, Disney, at one point, sued Marvel because Howard the Duck supposedly looks so much like Donald Duck. Oh, yeah. Look at him now. They're wedded. Yeah, they're, they're related for sure. But yeah, they could have made it a hard R. But I guess uh, that wasn't really going on so much in... Uh, 1986. 86, yeah. Not too many R-rated animated films in 1986. If you think about the, the comic book properties that have been adapted to film, I mean, there, there weren't a whole lot of those coming out, but you think of, of Superman and they were more, you know, family-friendly. At that point in time, there was nothing like Blade, where it was a hard R, you know, adult-oriented comic franchise. So there are rumors of a Howard the Duck movie happening and James Gunn directing, but he's shot those down. Good for him. So I have three trivia questions. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Uh, This first one is called Battle of the Bees, as in B-movie actors. Which of these three actors has the most acting credits, according to IMDb? Lance Hendrickson, Michael Ironside... Or Lloyd Kaufman of Troma Entertainment? I'll just go with Lloyd because Troma. Because Troma. Yeah. You say screen credits? Does television count? Acting, yeah. Yeah, television counts. I'm going to say Lance Henriksen. I'm going to say Michael Ironside. Oh, that worked out perfectly. So 
Lance Hendrickson has 236. Michael Ironside has 250. And Lloyd Kaufman has 329. <laughs> so that's one of the things that always wins me over when I, if I if I think a movie is really bad, but I end up liking it, is if it has a lot of heart and a lot of passion. Like a movie might have bad acting, but maybe they couldn't afford anything better. And in in some cases, I can look past that. Or if a, if a movie is bad but it looks really good, like I was not a fan of Fifty Shades of Grey, but the cinematography was really gorgeous you so, watched you watched 50 shades of gray yeah <laughs> we right. went uh we actually saw that in the theater because no yeah so we, we had to yeah. know you so, went to the theater we had to know saw it on valentine's day yeah oh, and the movie opens up with this awesome cover of annie lennox doing i put a spell on you Ooh. that i listen to I mean, frequently just for that yeah well you could <laughs> Uh, okay, so Trauma Entertainment released their their first feature film in 1971. It was called Battle of Love's Return, and it starred a 19-year-old George Clooney, or did it star Oliver Stone, or was it the film debut of a young Willem Dafoe? Which of those three actors was in the first Trauma Entertainment? What, what year was that? 1971. I'm taking a complete guess and saying it was... It was the beginning of Willem Dafoe. That's my guess. Can I say Willem Dafoe too? Or do I have to yeah. pick a different one? All right, I'm just Willem Dafoe. Um, I'll just be different and say George Clooney. It was Oliver Stone. Damn it! <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know he was really active. In... He must be friends with them. Yeah. He probably helped finance the studio. <laughs> All right, so Riff Tracks, which is like a mystery science theater type of show. They called this movie the worst film of the 90s. Was it Batman and Robin, Troll 2, Street Fighter, or Mortal Kombat Annihilation? I'm going to say Troll 2. What was was the very first one again? Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin. See, having seen Troll 2, I just don't know if Riff Tracks would be like, Troll 2 is the worst movie of the 90s, because I feel like they'd be like, everyone should see Troll 2. I think Troll (laughs) Troll 2 is a good, bad movie. Where Batman and Robin is a bad, bad movie. <laughs> so I'm going to say Batman and Robin. It's obviously Batman and Robin is a good, bad movie. No way. Yeah, it is. No, it's Troll, hilarious. Troll 2 is the good, bad movie. I'll just go with Batman and Robin. It is Batman and Robin. Yes. <laughs> it is pretty bad. Well, that's the thing, too. There are still entertaining parts of it, though. There are. But I think why Troll 2 could become a good, bad movie is because you'd never think there's a scene where the kid has to make a quick decision. <laughs> To stop his family from eating the food. He could have just... So time is frozen, you know? He could take all the food away from from everyone. He could just get it out. He could say, nobody eat. Instead, the kid stands up on the table and starts pissing on all of the food. Good, bad movie. It really is. Well, I think, Ben, you got two uh, out of three of those. Good job, Ben. Bravo. If I can figure out this sound thing, uh, I'll have you back next time and, and you pick the movie. Thanks for uh, coming on. Bye, Ben. No problem. See you later. Bye. Good guy, Ben. Glad he won. Good guy, guy, Ben. I got to see Bleeders. Yeah. Yeah, Bleeders is weird. (laughs) No, as soon as he said that, I pulled it up on my Uh phone just to read a little bit. And 
I'm I'm guessing the poster that they have for it is the the cover of it. It, it doesn't sound like, like one what of the he's crazy. No, and then he starts describing it. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it's got this what like thin hell? film across the cover, and it's got gel inside of the movie box. Oh man! In between the box and the slip cover. Oh, so they spent some money on that one. Yeah, yeah, they did. That it was like that's. I feel like that's what Netflix does. I, I love horror movies, and I love Netflix, but. There's so much garbage mm-hmm. on Netflix, and the cover art is often deceiving. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was in the 90s, too. Like, when I was little, it was also deceiving. But now, when I'm going to watch a movie, I have, like, Rotten Tomatoes on one screen because I like the user reviews, not the critic right, reviews. Right, right. you got to average it out. Right, right. So I, I got the Rotten Tomatoes on one. I have YouTube on another to watch the trailer. So it's become this, like, mathematical equation for, yeah. like, which movie. And then it's also got the rating for me. The Netflix rating, you know, like a 98% match. They right. just started doing that. And it is just, it's just too involved. I loved what you'd like. You totally had me captivated when you were talking about just browsing the halls of the video store. Walking around yeah, family it, video, yeah. It was an equalizer before the internet. Like, yeah. it was all fair game. Carnivore, I know exactly what you're talking about right, with that right. cover. Yeah. And I always thought to myself, like, if anything's better than Jurassic Park, it's, gonna be it's carnivore. probably Carnivore, yeah, you know? Yeah. But that's like, but at the same time, even with Netflix now, I mean, yeah, you can go the route and be like, do I commit the hour and 30 minutes to, you know, uh, this random Netflix horror movie that has no one you've ever heard of? It's like it matches with you 61%. Right, right. But Sarah and I, Sarah and I have just been kind of going for it lately. Yeah. Like we're big fan. We've been watching a ton of shark movies. Uh-huh. I brought up Deep Blue Sea earlier. Like I'd never seen Deep Blue Sea. Oh, really? What'd you think? Sarah, well, so Sarah showed it to me the whole time I was watching it. I was like, this would be so much better. If it was just the LL Cool J scenes. And yeah. then I was at work one day and Sarah emailed me a video and it was a uh, deep blue Cool J. <laughs> she, she took only the scenes of the LL Cool J and edited it into one coherent movie. And it becomes the story of a chef whose best friend is a parrot <laughs> who's at work one day and is terrorized by sharks. <laughs> it's oh my incredible. God. <laughs> I think Deep Blue Sea was my favorite of the 90s animal attack movies between like Anaconda Late- and Oh, Lake yeah. Placid. Dude, Anaconda, that's a crazy bad, bad movie, too. Yeah. John Voight gets eaten, and then in front of Ice Cube, they puke him out. And he winks. And he, and he, he's dead, but he, he winks he at the camera wink. and falls over. Yeah, how did he not get uh, snake slime in oh, his in God. his eye? You just, you yeah, just didn't question, I guess. Lake Placid was... I know I've seen it, but I don't remember anything from it. It's that movie. intense. The man. woman like raises the alligator. Yeah, yeah. And who was that cows. woman? But Betty White. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. She that. was feeding him. Yeah, I think Bill yeah. Paxton or no Bill Pullman. Sorry, Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman and Bridget Fonda. Is that right? Yeah. And Oliver Platt. Yeah, plays Oliver like Platt. the scientist who knows everything. He's, he shows up to save the day and gets ripped. He was about half. the giant gator. I went through a phase where I really was into giant alligator because there was also croc. Was it croc? There was like the movie where they flushed the baby alligator down. I think it was just called Alligator. And they okay. flush a baby alligator down the toilet and it lives in the sewer and becomes gigantic <laughs> and like terrorizes some people. That is like super early on. It's like ripped I'm from the headlines. To, yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. I know that's a movie. That was like a whole decade of animal attack. Yeah. So would that have been like eight-legged, eight-legged, eight-legged freaks, freaks, eight-legged freaks, attack movie? Eight-legged freaks is 2000s though, I think. It was like yeah, I mean, so was Lake Placid, right? Like, that would have been. Was I'm it? saying like probably like 98 to like 2003. They were just pushing. Lake Placid was 99. 99. Okay, all right. Huh. 
Yeah, they had one good bad and then just released a whole bunch of bad bad. And you go like back to arachnophobia. Oh man, I tried to watch that for the first time. Also, I fell asleep though. Sarah was trying to tell me that's that's the jam right there. At some point in the last five years, I guess it was with the birth of Sharknado, but I think it was a little bit before. It's like there was a need for these kind of movies that aren't accidentally bad. They're like intentionally bad. Because the first Sharknado did really, really well. Right. And I watched it, but I was kind of I was kind of mad that I didn't like discover this obscure B movie on my own that was like a VHS that was hidden under a stack and that was Sharknado. Right. But it was like this huge, huge movie that was like all over the world and got Can you call it a B movie? No. I mean it, it it's it's a B movie as you watch it, but it was huge. They've made like five of them now. They have yeah. red carpet premieres for them every time they come out. <laughs> and the cast is always more and more impressive. Yeah. yeah. It's not just Ian 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 Ziering anymore from nine oh two one oh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he did great. <laughs> Everything worked out for him. I found this Reddit thread that said, um, what's a really bad movie with great cinematography? And there were a couple that were kind of interesting, but there's this famous quote from uh, Roger Deakins, who did, he does all of the Coen Brothers cinematography. He did the new Blade Runner. He's, yeah, yeah, he's, a, he's the fucking master. But he said, when you, in movies... There's images that look beautiful and there's images that look awful, but the only good cinematography is appropriate cinematography. And I really like that because I watch a lot of short films Mm -hmm. on YouTube and sometimes you watch a short film where a director, he shoots it like every shot has to be a mind-blowing perspective, like angle that nobody's ever seen before. Right. And it's like, that's not really, you know, if it's not motivated, it's not really appropriate. I'm also not a cinematographer, so that's just my two cents. I think a lot of that comes from like Quentin Tarantino and those guys in the '90s that were like a had like a heavy style and drew a lot of attention to their style. Kind of ruined it to a certain extent because obviously, like he's a master, but a lot of the copycats that came after that, where it was like people realizing like, oh, well, I have to like draw attention to the cinematography itself, where it's like that's I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like like you were saying. Like, it needs to be motivated mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And it's not just about, like, what's the coolest angle or the coolest shot that I can come up with here. Yeah. It's just, like, what is going to drive the story forward here? I don't think everyone has to ha- always have a style. When I think of, like, Roger Deakins, I think, like, oh, he's a great director of photography. But I don't think, like, of a particular style, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, there's some directors that you can watch 10 seconds of it and know, like, oh, I'm watching a David Fincher film. Right. So we did The Room. Was back in Peoria, which I loved, and Ben loved it, and he appreciated it, and Stu hated it. Like he <laughs> he understood that it was celebrated for its badness. A lot of people call it the Citizen Kane of bad movies, <laughs> and I think that's a great description. Yeah, but he couldn't get into the spirit of it, and I think a lot of people who don't really understand what we mean and, like, turn this off 20 minutes ago, probably didn't have that rites of passage as a kid wandering through the video store. Because as I get older, I realize, oh, not everybody did that? Oh, yeah, okay. That wild? It is wild. 
I mean, like as an adult, I went and he did too, worked at Family Video because like that was one of those like sacred kind of temples for me where it was like, this is a place where like I can support so this. Much. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it's I can pedal this. It's not a grocery store. Right, I'll right. Here, you know? I'll sell your stuff because yeah. like this is a magical place, you know? And I always kind of retain that. Even when you see behind the curtain a little bit, I was still like very much, even though like maybe like only 10% of my coworkers at Family Video <laughs> saw eye to eye with me. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. On that, on that plane of like, this is an important place. Yeah, you know? Every, yeah it was totally sacred. <laughs> it's gone yeah. though. That no, Family Video is, is not. Well, the world is gone. The industry is pretty I'm much completely going, gone. Going to a drive-in yeah. and just having a room filled with movies. Right. Anything's your next great adventure that's yeah. gone now it's, that, that was like a sacred time that now was like just scrolling through with your remote and you're yeah. just like well i know it's, that's bad so just keep moving not you know? nearly that's that's not like an experiential thing whereas like going to the video store was like my mom had to drop me off at the video store and then go run errands and come back to the video because that's how much still time. not ready to go yeah, yeah. I, yeah. that's how much time you've like, narrowed I it down to there. six yeah like give me a little i need a little bit more time how about you go home you watch like designing <laughs> women and then come back <laughs> Joey, you can't let death becomes her again. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like the magic is gone in that aspect. Like, we're too spoiled where when I was younger, you would, like, come home with whatever two selections you had left, and you're going to watch them no matter how bad they are. But the other day, I was, like, trying to watch a movie, and I flipped between Netflix, couldn't find anything on there of the two billion movies on Netflix, couldn't find anything that yeah. I wanted. I went to HBO Go, watched, looked at their 500 movie, couldn't find anything there. Then I went to Hulu, I couldn't find anything there. And then I went through Amazon, I couldn't find anything there. I'm like, what the, what the fuck has happened to me? Who have I become? Yeah. Spend an hour and a half. I'll be like, well, it's time for bed. I'll put something on to fall asleep. And then it's one in the morning. Just <laughs> right. Scrolling like, nah, I can't Just trying to bed. find a movie to watch 20 minutes and of. Finally, I see like a Steven Seagal movie. I'm like, okay. All right. Yeah. Put it on and pass out. But that's a, there's a criteria that needs to be met for a movie like that. Like it needs so, to the be. Fall asleep movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it needs to be something Ooh. that's familiar what is your number one fall asleep oh movie? the abyss <laughs> yeah the right. abyss that's a good one it's got to be one that Damn, like you're one. familiar with so you can drift out then come back and you're not totally lost but it also can't be too engaging right you know what about you joey well i only do tv anymore because this weird thing started happening where the, when the as, as soon as the movie was over i would wake up and I don't know. It, yeah, it was terrible. For, for the longest time, it was high fidelity. Wait, was like what? My, what happened? Well, like when I was putting movies on to fall asleep to them, as soon as like the credits started rolling, I would always wake up. What did I say? Did I say fall asleep? I said, I meant like I would wake up as soon as the credits start to roll. And so I was like, this is terrible. So I just started streaming like TV shows. So right now it's Cosmos. So it just keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it can just play into the night. Just, yeah. <laughs> so right now it's, uh, it's Cosmos. Um, the the space show yeah because oh, yeah, I just like good. that and then before that it was um Sherlock because like that sort of oh, monotone like one, British yeah. talking I need something I have like a problem to solve yeah I need something that doesn't have like a lot of peaks and valleys like that's sort of like the same monotone talking the whole time well I, I picked foreign film I always put in a foreign film with that's subtitles yeah. because I'm reading so it instantly yeah. makes me tired. And then I I can't understand what they're saying, so nothing will ever like pique my interest as soon as I decide to close my eyes. Yeah. So I'll always pick like like a samurai flick or some French film to put on. Like Enter the Dragon, I've probably because of how many times I've put in a, Enter the Dragon on to fall asleep to. It's probably like my most watched film of all time because <laughs> there's been like 
living when I first moved to Chicago, there was at least probably like four or five months where every single night was press play on Enter the Dragon, right. and you'd be out before Bruce Lee even gets to the boat. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a great soundtrack in Enter the Dragon. That's, that's one I put that in my top three. That's that's one of my Desert Island flicks. Oh wow, Enter the Dragon. What are your? Do you have three Desert Island movies? Three Desert Island movies. I hope you don't, because I don't. Um, I don't. No, I haven't. I, I haven't thought about it. I, I think Back it. to the Future would be one. I can tell you that. Just part one. Part one. Yeah. I'd have The Thing, Enter the Dragon, and The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Those that's, all, that's all I need. Those are fantastic choices. <laughs> I mean, anything. I'm mean, sure. Like, I'd want to bring Fight Club along, or I'd want to bring Heat. You know, right. I wish I could bring heat, but there's no reason to watch heat on a desert island. Like, no, something to entertain myself to pass the time, increase some paranoia with the thing, fulfill my childhood dreams with Empire Strikes Back, and then Enter the Dragon. It's just, I just love it. So you don't have to justify that. Those are great. <laughs> but I, I see bad, what I would call bad, bad movies coming out all the time still. Like when Nine Lives came out. Yeah, with lies. Kevin Spacey. Right. Oh, it was the talking cat. Yeah. Like, Sarah wanted to watch that. I was convinced that like the filmmakers were in on the joke and they're like, look, guys, we actually made it. Ooh, and Jennifer Garner's in that. Yeah, too. she is. I and think something happened. Like, that's one of those movies where it started out as something else entirely and things kind of fell apart during. This is just me guessing, but like things maybe fell apart during production <laughs> and something that started out as like a man battling like a terminal illness became a movie about a man who is turned into a cat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was just prove he respects his family and right. loves his daughter. <laughs> right. Like the, the studio kept sending notes like needs more humor. Like and eventually they were just like, fine, like yeah. he becomes a cat. <laughs> Is that what you wanted? It's like an Aliens That'll 3 do. scenario. Yeah. yeah, it was like a constant cycle of just go with it. Just go. I watched The Do-Over with Adam Sandler. Oh, There's a weird, ugly side in me that sometimes if I have like pizza and I'm like just flipping through, I came upon The Do-Over uh-huh. with Adam Sandler and David <laughs> Spade. And I was like, tonight's the night. This is We're a, doing the do-over. The, that's a Netflix-funded movie, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of and the Adam Sandler Netflix movies are ranked among the highest of anything on Netflix. Yeah. Wow. And he's got like a five-picture deal, which is weird because I used to love Adam Sandler. And I'm sure that we can all quote Billy Madison yeah. and Happy Gilmore. Oh, yeah. But something cynical happened in me, and I don't think it was a particular movie of mm-hmm. his. If I had to guess, I would probably say Bulletproof. But uh, I was just like... It's not for me anymore. See, like, I, I don't even know if he ever changed. I think it was just, like, getting older and just horrible things happening. And, like, the humor was just like, well, I don't know, man. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's like, sorry, man. Like, I just can't. I can't Do you think there's some, like, blissful guess. ignorance in that? Maybe, like, yeah. I disagree. I think the movies got considerably worse as they went along. <laughs> really? yeah, if you look at, like, if you watch, like, Billy Madison now... And then you immediately follow it up with like Little Nicky or um or like Mr. Deeds when they started to like kind of like fall off. Right. Like there's a considerable difference in terms of quality in my mind. So like I I can get behind like early Adam Sandler, but like something happened like where he wasn't he like lost that youthful like whatever it is and maybe like started having kids. So it was kind of like this weird cross between trying to be a little bit family friendly and. So that's where that's where that kind of lost me. But yeah, I was I was with it up until like Big Daddy. Even I thought I think Big Daddy's a funny movie. Yeah, I like Big Daddy. Um, Comedies are just tough, though. Yeah, you know, like you can't watch a horror movie and walk away from it and be like, nope, that wasn't a horror movie. 
And the same with action. But with comedy, if I walk away, like if I don't laugh once, if I really don't think the movie's funny, yeah. it's got no value. It's like you had one job, you know, even a bad action movie is still action packed. Oh yeah. Know? Like I said to you, like bad, bad movie, that Sly Stallone movie, Bullet in the Head. It's a oh, bad, yeah. bad movie. But at the end of the day, it's still Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Killing Bullet tons of people. That was a newer one, huh? Yeah. Yeah. A few years back. Does it seem like they're just like, it's a constant dick measuring contest between Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and like now Stallone is doing it too. It's been going on since the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but his first one, Arnold's first one after being governor was The Last Stand. The Last Stand, Stand which oh, Sam yeah. wants to. God, Sam, Sam loves that movie. For, it's good. Last it's a good Stand movie. Is good. It's not bad. Yeah. yeah. Johnny Knoxville's in it. Right. Did you hear about the Henry Cavill mustache uh, debacle? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did hear about that. Oh, my that. God. That's that is really so funny. Like, that. I don't understand why they didn't just like have the other movie digitally add a beard to him or just wear a prosthetic, like a fake beard. Grace. Like the millions of dollars that went into like CGIing out that mustache. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. So mustache. Henry Cavill is in the new Mission Impossible 6 movie and he's got a mustache in it. <sighs> and while he was filming for that, they decided they were going to put him in Justice League. Kind of spoiler alert. But he was contractually obligated by Paramount to keep his mustache, he couldn't shave it for Justice League, so they had to pay animators to digitally remove his mustache no for the way. scenes that, and the scenes where he yeah. has. Oh God, it's just ridiculous. It looks it looks pretty bad. Actually. It looks pretty bad. They, I mean, I better mean, than better than I could do on my hit film. Well, Express, yeah, totally. But, but it's like I mean, you know, like nothing against the animators. Like they have to rebuild his whole entire upper lip. That's like, crazy. Whereas, like, Paramount could have, like, it would be much easier to add a mustache <laughs> than to. Than to <laughs> yeah, that's so true. It wiggles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mustache has a mind of its own. I've been, I've been trying to to catch up on like movies that I feel like I should have seen. That like I feel like they're the movies that like everyone has seen or everyone talks about. So the last one I just watched was the. An American Werewolf in London. Oh yeah, it's a good movie. I'd never seen that, and a lot of people talked about it. And uh-huh. and I went into it thinking like this is a bad movie, right? Isn't uh-huh. this supposed to be like a bad horror mm-hmm. movie? Like but day. then I remembered people thinking like, well, okay, well, is it a comedy? Like that scared the shit out. I was yeah. like, this is intense. Yeah, I watched it last year for the first time. It's wild. And I had, I'm sure I had your same mentality because it was, uh, you know, from the guy who did Animal House. John and Landis. John Landis. Lower, lower, yeah. Landis. Lower, lower, lower. Landis. Oh my God. Oh no. But I think the thing that got me in American Werewolf in London was the chemistry between the two guys was yeah. so good. Yeah. So fun to watch. You and it only made friends, the scary yeah. scenes even scarier. Right. The fucked up dream sequences oh, yeah, yeah. when he's wandering through the woods. When, the, the, when he's at like family dinner and the Nazi werewolves yeah. start murdering. Right. They're just shooting up. I was like, what the hell am I watching? Yeah. And how about that transformation scene? Yeah. Well, and, and so Sarah was like, you have to watch this. Like, you love the thing. You have to watch this movie. And that blew my mind. Like, when his, his face is stretching right. out, it's like, I still don't really understand how. The, I, I don't understand how you can make Jurassic World look the way Jurassic World does, like, yeah. two years ago. Right. And that blows it out of the water from, like, 1980, what was it, like, 80. One or eighty-two. Yeah, and the cool thing about that scene is it's shot just like in a brightly lit room where yeah. there's like there's no trickery with the lighting oh, yeah, or no anything. shadows. Yeah. I still have never seen a movie with that actually showed somebody turning into a wolf that way. There's like clever ways around it, but especially when his 
face changed. Part of it was prosthetic, but obviously it was like an animatronic head, you know, whatever. But it was un, it was unreal. And you watch like Underworld where they just morph in like in two seconds, like in a computer into a werewolf and then back into a man. It's a guy that just like turns into a bush. (laughs) Yeah. It's just so boring and lazy and. Yeah. I think that's just part of who we are as like being, um, old souls perhaps. Cause I'm, I'm that way too as far as. Did you ever see? There's a new movie that came out last year on Netflix called Turbo Kid. Oh yeah, I saw Turbo Kid. It was like takes place in 1997, or but it's yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like the love letter to John Carpenter, right? Who, Michael Ironside is in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I guess I forgot to mention John Carpenter was originally penned to direct Howard the Duck. Really? Ooh, mm-hmm. That's crazy. How was the John Carpenter oh, show? Man, so. Well, we missed like the first three songs because our Lyft driver was just driving in circles downtown. So we finally got in and I just ran in right as They Live was ending. And I was like, oh, man. And then it was immediately desolation from the thing. And I was just like, yeah. (laughs) And then as it went on, it was like I was just blown away each song. Like he played um, the song from Vampires. It was amazing. Uh, The movie um, In the Mouth of Madness, that Sam Neill Mm -hmm. movie. That music was incredible. It's like I'd never think that I'd be rocking out to the score from Big Trouble in Little China, right. and it just blows you away. Like a dude's just shredding guitar, and John Carpenter's just like nodding and playing these things. Wow. It was amazing. That was so cool. Yeah, I, w- I feel like I would have paid just to hear Escape from New York. It was incredible. Oh, I missed. I missed that one. Oh, that, yeah. that one was earlier in the set. But like the night was incredible, and it, it gave me almost a greater appreciation for his music. Because I mean, yeah, I've always loved the music. But, like, having seen that now, it's like I hold the music, like, in a higher regard now for, like, yeah. Big Trouble in Little China than right. I do the film Big Trouble in Little China. It's just like, you wrote that, dude. You wrote all these songs. Yeah. And I never really think about it like that. Right. And then here you are playing it. it <laughs> and directing, awesome. too. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it was awesome. Christine, you closed with the track from Christine. And, oh, cool. And they had the screen playing and the cars just, like, driving <laughs> down the highway and the dude's just shredding guitar. I was just thinking about something. I don't think this can count as uh, an epiphany, but we were talking about how easy it is to spit out the movies like Underworld. Mm-hmm. And then you think about movies like Escape from New York, like the scene where he's got the digital heads-up display when he's hang gliding into New York. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that you know how they did that. And like they, they had these models that they spray-painted all black, and then they put green electrical tape on the edges of all the buildings and like on the windowsills. So when they shot it, it looked like it was a like virtual reality computer display. Oh my God. I didn't know that. But That's awesome. Models? But it's actual models. That's amazing. Wow. But just like thinking about any miniatures and like the Blade Runner set and how many man hours goes into this idea. And it's just like whole crew of people that's like, we did all this for you, yeah. the viewer. Oh yeah. We want, you know, we want to give you this special treat. And now it's just like, some guy doing, you know, computer. where yeah. it's cheaper. Right. I mean, like you have a movie like Blade Runner 2049 where they go back and I mean, it's, it's a mix of both worlds, but they built those huge sets or like even the Lord of the Rings movies, they build those giant forests in the warehouse yeah. and it makes it look incredible. It changes everything. Yeah. But when you just have the CG, like, yeah, it's cheaper, but then they'll just take the same amount that they could have built all these props and just mm-hmm. put it all into like the greatest trailers and a hundred billboards in one city. Just push and push and push and push and push, even though it's a 
it's a piece of crap, you know. The worst offender, like in my mind, going back to John Carpenter, is the remake of The Thing, which I guess was like a prequel to The Thing. Yeah. The one with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah. Where they like, they the, they took it very seriously and remade a lot of the animatronics from the first film. Uh, or like did the effects in the style of the animatronics from the first film. And then the studio made them trace over it on the computer with CGI. Yep. You guys know about that? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's a travesty. It is. Yeah. But that became Harbinger Down. Did you ever see Harbinger Down? No. What's the that? studio effects company that got all their stuff cut by the people who did the thing, they did a Kickstarter to make their own feature-length film. And it is essentially the exact story of the thing to the point where if, if you didn't know the backstory going into it, you would hate it just because it's like a total ripoff of the thing. But yeah, they raised a Kickstarter and they made this movie and like their, the tagline for the movie was a practical effects film. Huh. And their whole selling was not one computer was used in the making of this oh, movie. That's cool. And it is. Fun. I mean, it's great. It's good. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I would. I'm not going to compare it to the thing, but I would much rather watch that over the remake of the thing. Yeah, totally. It's definitely worth renting on iTunes. But yeah, I have a thing for practical effects, as as we all do. Yeah, and well, what's funny is a lot of these good bad movies had that. You know, if you think about it like that, like the bad bad movies are all the CG ones. You know, the good bad ones is like everyone was trying really hard. Yeah. I mean, and also visual effects are fucking awesome. Don't get me wrong, because, like, nobody uses visual effects more than David Fincher, right? I mean, he's, like, the master of visual effects, and he's kept up with his technique, so it's not this dated style. Mm -hmm. But I was reading that Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has more visual effects shots than the Godzilla remake. And it's done to propel the story. It's not done as, like, like, a special effect. Like, I think we talked about this last time, but he only uses CG blood, David Fincher. I knew, I knew that. Well, you taught me that. I, I didn't know that until you said that. And then there was a scene at the end where she was riding her motorcycle through the city to get to this house on fire, and she didn't have her helmet on. So David Fincher decided that she is a little reckless, but she always wears her helmet, so that says something about her character. But at the end of the movie, she's riding her motorcycle through the city, and she's not wearing her helmet. So that tells you where her character is. So they're like, obviously, we can't film her on a motorcycle. So they filmed the stunt double, and then they did CG replacement wow, with with her insane. head. Yeah, and Mindhunter is is the same way. There's visual effects all over the place. But it's, it's like the idea of if, if they do it the way that they should, you will never have known that they were there. Yeah, right. I mean, like, that says a lot because, I mean, like, his people must be really good because then you look at Justice League where they took the mustache off. And yeah. It's just like, oof. We could go on forever about bad movies, <laughs> but do you have any uh, closing thoughts on, on your movie or, or bad movies in general? Um, with the Christmas season coming up, uh, I was just thinking about, like, really bad movies. And um, one thing that I've become kind of obsessed with is the Christmas movies that, like, Lifetime and ABC Family churn out. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's like Yeah, a, a little bit. And like most of them section. have Harry Connick Jr. Harry Connick Jr. and, like, Mario Lopez and Joey Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, 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 in, like, yeah. all of them. Uh-huh. And uh, there's a whole section of Netflix just dedicated to them. And I was scrolling oh through God. them today. And I think there's like there's like 25 just in a row, and they're all the same. There's like the Spirit of Christmas, the Christmas Kiss, Kissmas, the the, <laughs> the Christmas Kiss too, and then there's like the Christmas Prince and the Christmas. It just like goes on and on and on and on. And I was like, this is fucking fascinating. And just like who was watching? And they all have like a supernatural element. Like they all 
half of them rip off Groundhog Day to one extent or another, where like a girl is reliving the same day over and over until she gets like a date with some guy, right, on Christmas Eve. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm just fat. And they're just terrible, like terrible movies. So have you watched some of them? I have watched some of them, Jimmy, and <laughs> I can confirm they're pretty bad. Awesome. <laughs> I just watched Krampus. Oh, I saw it. came out like two Scott. years. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah it I loved good. it too. It was fun. It was like, I don't know how it was received, but it definitely brought it me well. back to like uh-huh. the Joe Dante days. Yeah, it was cool. And a lot of that shit is hard to, to market, I think. But I think they did a pretty good job. That was kind of one that was made with like intentional camp. Yeah. But I but I feel like it was never as dark as it was trying to be and it, but it was also never as funny as it was trying to be either. Yeah, the only part that was like over the top was David Koechner versus the Gingerbread Men mm-hmm. where he had the shotgun. Which was awesome. Mhm. Uh and like it was a pretty solid cast. Tony Collette, is that her name? Yeah, yeah she was in it. Yep. Adam Scott. Yeah, he he's uh, shown up in everything. Yeah. He was in the uh the Overnight Oh, yeah. I saw The Overnight. Weird. That was a super weird movie. Super weird. And um, he's in The Good Place recently. You ever watched The Good Place? No. And uh, then he's, he's in, in Little Evil? Yeah. Little, I watched that. And Little I haven't Evil. watched Little that Evil. yet. Little Evil was good. He's everywhere. And then David Koechner is everywhere, too. You guys watch Future Man yet? On no, Hulu? I haven't. Uh, we saw, yeah. Sarah and I watched it. Is that the one with Josh Man. Hutcherson? Yeah. Future yeah, Man is great. great yeah. it, it, like, it, I've never seen a show where like it gets better with every episode at the rate like Future Man. Like, oh, I thought it was out, a movie. No, no. It's a, it's a TV show. It's like 13 what? episodes. Yeah. The first episode is like, oh, that's funny. Like, I'll watch the next one. Like, the end, like by the time you get to the end, it's, it's genius. Like, it's on par with Rick and Morty in my mind in terms of like over-the-top science fiction comedy. Wow. Yeah. It's great. Highly that's recommended. Cool. Norm? What do you think about VHS tapes? I mean, I'm a big fan. have a huge collection at my Moz. I, I just I hope that the good bad movie still survives, and I'll always be able to put up with the bad bad movies. Yeah, same. I have a cabinet full of VHS movies that I fought Anna over. I got rid of probably 300 or so no. VHS tapes. No, Jimmy. And some lady bought like 300 VHS tapes for like 20 bucks. And she told, she was like some AC from Morton. And she was like, I just want them for the resale. I'm like, okay. Resale. You're like, lady, you paid 20 bucks. There's, lady, that's this, the resale. This is the resale. <laughs> <laughs> you think you can get more than 20? But uh, I haven't touched them mm-hmm. in over a year. Like, I put one on as a joke. Yeah. Just like to entertain myself. Like, yeah, let's, let's watch one of these VHS on our stupid, nice new TV. Right. And it was bad. The picture was bad. The sound was bad. I was like, I'm not, as much as I love practical effects and like the days of yesteryear, uh, I'm just going to rent this on iTunes because yeah. it's digital and definably right. better. Right, right. But it's I need nice to, to keep have. them around. You got to yeah. have them around. It's like, important to keep it around. To, to us, you know, like I, we have the same debate in my house and I only have like 12 VHSs. Like I scaled it down, you know, long ago um, to like the essentials. But even the DVDs are like a topic of debate. It's like, do you really need all of these DVDs? Like you, you don't watch any of these DVDs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not the important part. The important part is that like this is a collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that you know, I will always have. The someday, visual aesthetic. Yeah, someday they'll be like in a box in my basement and it'll just say like DVD. No one, no one will have any way to watch that. <laughs> but they'll be like, who's a- David? <laughs> <laughs> What's Mr. Mom? <laughs> yeah, our debate is that she likes to buy the iTunes movies mm-hmm. so that she can build up her collection. And right. that's not, that doesn't, doesn't work for exist. me. What about when the solar flare hits? <laughs> exactly. And it wipes out your entire collection. Yeah, yeah, what about in 2012? Hard copy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. Well, uh, next time is going to be our Christmas episode, and you can check the Facebook for, for updates on what those films will be. You can listen to the rest of our episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud. Go to soundcloud.com slash movieshowtheater or wherever, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. That's where you can find us. Uh, until next time, I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Joey. I'm Norm Burns. And this has been Movie Show Theater. <laughs> Thank you.